Some of you will remember that uh, Mother Teresa was in America a few years ago before she went to be with the Lord, and she made a comment about America after being here for a few days. She said, I don't think I have ever seen so many hungry people. And she was not referring to physical hunger, although we do have that in America, and it's tragic that we do. She's talking about a spiritual hunger, not a hunger for things, but a hunger for something that will feed our souls. Charles Allen, the outstanding Methodist minister, teacher, writer, tells a story, a true story out of World War II, the conclusion of World War II. So many, many children in Europe were homeless, orphaned by the war. And so they brought together these children in some wonderful facilities to care for them, to feed them, and to clothe them. And they were being well fed and well cared for. But they were not sleeping at night. They were restless and nervous at night. And a very sensitive and perceptive psychologist had an idea. And what he did one evening, after they had had the evening meal, he said, do you want any more? Has everyone had sufficient food? We have plenty of food. Do you have enough? Are you satisfied? Yes, they were. He said, now, I'm going to give you something that I want you to take with you to bed. I do not want you to eat it. I want you to hold on to it. Because he determined that the reason those children were restless at night was because they had for so many months or even years been uncertain about tomorrow and about whether or not they would have enough food for tomorrow even though they were being amply fed now, they still had that fear ingrained within them. So he said, what I want you to do, I'm going to give each of you a piece of bread. And I don't want you to eat this bread. I want you to take it to bed with you and hold it in your hand, knowing that you'll have food for tomorrow. They did that, and the children slept soundly and peacefully. He did that for a number of nights until the psychological pattern had changed, and they had come to know that they were going to have bread tomorrow. So what I want to do this morning is talk to you for a few moments about some slices from the bread of life that you and I can hold in our hearts and in our hands that will help us through the days and through the nights. Bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread 
of life, eternal life, spiritual life, meaningful life, grace-filled life, joy-filled life, peace-filled life. If you're hungry for that, you'll find an answer to your hunger in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. No accident, prophetic indeed, that Jesus was born, the bread of life, born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem. Beth is the Hebrew word for house. Lehem, the word for bread. You see it when you read your Bible. You read the, about the, uh, the city or the town, Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, Elohim, Bethel, Bethany, the little village three and a half miles from Jerusalem, just over the brow of the, of the uh, Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, where Jesus would stay when he was in Jerusalem. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. He would stay in Bethany in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Bethany means house of poverty, house of affliction. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would pick a spot such as that to identify himself even further by his geographical location of his commitment to those who are hungry and afflicted? What a man. And what a God. I want to read you from the second chapter of the gospel, the oh, first chapter of the gospel of Luke, these words. Slices from the bread of life for us. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Did you hear that? The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. And then from Matthew, the first chapter, these words, the 18th verse and following. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give the name, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I decided a couple of weeks ago that I wouldn't look at anything, any sermon I have preached 
in the last, well, 40 Christmases that I have been here. And I have always preached two or three sermons each December about Christmas. I decided not to go back and look at any notes or manuscripts or ideas or anything. I just decided to just read this story in Luke and in Matthew over and over and over again and see what it said to me. And so what I've come to share with you in a very simple way this morning is what uh, the Spirit of God gleaned to me and handed me some slices of bread that I want to pass on to you because the loaf is big enough for all of us to eat plenty and even have 12 baskets full left over. There are three things, three, three slices, just simple things that came out of my reading of this story. Number one is, you heard him say it, you heard God say it to Mary. And he said it in so many words to Joseph. God is with you. God is with you. And you and you, God is with you. John Wesley, a great reformer, pastor, writer, theologian, said the greatest word of all is God is with us. God is with us. God is with us in the most unexpected places. God is with us in the most unlikely places. God is with us in the mangers of the world. God is with us in the dark alleys of life. God is with us when our lives have been uprooted by a decree from some Caesar. God is with us when some Herod wants to destroy us. God is with us in all of the exigencies of life. God is with us. Write that down. Take that slice of God's word of bread of life and put it in your hand and know it. Know it. Know it. God is with you. Morris West, that marvelous novelist, and I've read a number of his books and I do not remember which one this came from, this story. He put into the, into the mouth of a citizen of London these words. This man was living in a dark, dingy slum on a dead-end alley. And in those days, Great Britain had a great colonial empire that encompassed the globe, India, Egypt, Palestine, Great Britain, Scotland, Ireland, Canada, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Australia. And the saying was true, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And it didn't. The sun never set on the British Empire. And here was this man living in the hovel in a slum in Rome. And he said this, what does it profit a man to be a citizen of an empire upon which the sun never sets if he has to live in an alley where the sun never rises? No, you don't have to live there. We don't have to live there. 
For the kingdom we are a part of is from everlasting to everlasting and of a truth the Son never sets on the kingdom of God where'er the Son doth its successive journeys run. God is there. God is there. Now to bring it more personally to us. What does it profit us to live in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. What does it profit us to live in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth if we have no internal power within us to cope with the tragedies and the difficulties and the exigencies of life? What profit is all of that to us? However good the stock market might be, however affluent America might be, what does that, if we have no spiritual wealth within us because of the residence of God's spirit living there, what does it profit us to live in the most affluent nation on the face of the earth if we do not have the pearl of great price? What does it profit us to live in a nation that's one of the most educated nations in all the world? Educational opportunities on every hand. What does it profit us to live in such a nation as that if we do not know him whom to know is life everlasting? To be able to say with Paul, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. College graduate, postgraduate, honors, you know many things. The accumulation of knowledge in this room is incalculable. But the big issue is, do we know him? For the accumulation of all of that knowledge, as wonderful as it may be, will be as nothing. It will be as sounding brass and clanging cymbal if we do not know him who is the Lord of the living and the King of eternity. God is with us. And God has come to save us. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save us. He will save his people from their sins. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just the moral people, church-going people, religious people, Bible-reading people, American people, English-speaking people, all the people. I've got good news for all the people. There's nothing exclusive about this. There's nothing esoteric about this. This is not reserved for a minority of the religious. It's going to be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He came for everybody with the good news, but he comes to you and to me and each one of us personally. Intimately, internally, to you, to save us from our sins. I I know we say it often, and we need to say it often, but I think we've heard it so often it kind of goes over our heads, it kind of slips over our heads. But it just needs to be said again and again and again. Friends, all of us have sinned. I mean, all of us in this room have sinned. 
Now, as I've often said, we've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned. All alike have sinned. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. I wonder how many of us in this room would like for us to pull down these big screens that we have here and let somebody project onto those screens everything that we have thought or said or done over the last five years. There would be a mass exodus from San Antonio. You couldn't find an airplane to get you out of here fast enough. Well, Bogner, I haven't done this thing and that thing. Listen, let's stop looking at the surface and let's get down underneath where God does business with our souls. Listen and read the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to other things that Jesus said throughout his ministry. He said, if you have looked on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. You hate somebody. Bible says, Jesus says, you've murdered. And no murderer has any part, the Bible says, in the kingdom of God. I haven't stolen anything, lusted after something, greed. All of us have sinned. We may not have acted that out in terms of our behavior, and I pray we would not because the consequences of that are are catastrophic for the individual and for others, certainly. But listen, the problem is not with our hands, it's with our hearts. It's not what we do with our bodies, it's what we think in our minds, what we desire, what we lust after, what we search for, what we long for. Out of the heart proceed the issues of life. It's so much deeper than we're willing to admit. All of us have sinned. Now, when you go out to get on an airplane, um, they have this metal detector there. You all all know that. And I've gone through there and the, and the alarm goes off. And it just it makes you feel like you're, you're a prisoner or you're an escaped convict. Or something. You go through there and the bell, ah, ah, the bell rings. And so you take your change out and you watch and whatever else you may have and you go back and go through it. And I've gone through it two or three times and the thing keeps setting off. And then they really embarrass you. They take you over there to the side, that little machine, and they run it around and with their teeth, you know, and they hear it, the whole, the whole bit. And then they finally let you on. Well, now suppose, just suppose that here at this church, which we don't have and never will have, but suppose we had here at this church a sin detector at each, at each entrance, a sin detector. And to get in here, you have to walk up there and, and Jesus himself is standing on the other side of the detector. He's the only one that can be in here because he's the only one that is perfect, right? He's the only sinless one. So he's inside and we come walking up there and suddenly the thing goes, wow, 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 wow. Red lights flashing everywhere. All sorts of sins up there. I mean, there are just dozens of them. And so you say, oh my goodness, my goodness. You go back through again, try and say, well, let, let me explain it. I can do this and this happened and so-and-so caused me to do that. And this person over here was the cut. Going back through, going back through. Said, well, I, 
I want to get on that express plane that goes to heaven. Jesus said, you can, and here's what you do. You give me all of your stuff. You give me all of your sin, known and unknown, confessed and unconfessed. You give it all to me, and I'm going to take it. And when I take it, I'm going to pay the penalty for that sin. I'm going to die on a cross so that you can get free passage on that plane that will take you to heaven forever and ever. I see people getting in line up there ahead of me and I see the Pope up there in front of me. I say, oh my goodness, maybe I can get through. If I can get up close enough to him, I can kind of sneak in behind him. With all due respect to the Pope, and I respect him tremendously. I think he's a fantastic man. But let me tell you, when he steps up there, the alarm's going to go off. For there is none righteous, no, not one. Maybe religious, but that's not the same thing as being made right with God. Well, here's Billy Graham. Billy, can I kind of sneak in there with you? We've been friends for a long time. Let me kind of get up there, try to sneak in with Billy. Billy, no, one at a time, one at a time. Billy goes up there, flash goes off. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm reading a book, fascinating book about Mother Teresa, entitled No Greater Love. Let me read you what this incredible woman said. And she says a lot about this throughout this book. When we realize that we are all sinners needing forgiveness, when we realize that we are all sinners, Mother Teresa talking here, it will be easy for us to forgive others. We have to be forgiven in order to be able to forgive. Every human being comes from the hand of God and we all know something of God's love for us. Whatever our religion, we know that if we really want to love, we must first learn to forgive before anything else. If you confess your sins, your faith, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he cleanses us and forgives us. And that means we then automatically, inevitably forgive one another. If you forgive, listen, Jesus, this is not Buckner making this up. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you your trespasses. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you yours. Now that's just about as plain as day. In the Lord's Prayer, which He taught us to pray, or the model prayer, He said, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. What if, he does? what if he forgave us the way we forgive other people? In other words, if we don't forgive other people, we're not going to be forgiven. The proof of our having been forgiven is a spirit and attitude of forgiveness toward other people. You say, well, Buckner, I don't approve of what that person did. Well, do you approve of what you did? Of course not. We don't approve of it. It doesn't mean we justify it, nor do we mean that they do not have to suffer the consequences of their misdeeds any more than we have to, don't have to suffer the consequences of our misdeeds. 
But we're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about individuals coming together. We're talking about a nation coming together through grace. Through forgiveness. If I have been forgiven, I forgive. It's a simple argument. You've had philosophy, I hope you have, in college. At least, I think everybody would have at least a year of philosophy. Study ethics, study logic, and you get uh, a priori reasoning or deductive reasoning. Here's a cause, and here's, this cause creates this effect. Cause and effect, okay? If I have been forgiven, that means I automatically, inevitably, forgive others. There is also inductive reasoning. Apostory, not a priori, apostory. You look back. Okay, if I'm hating people, if I'm resentful of people, if I'm unforgiving of other people, you reason from that effect to that cause back here. If I'm like that over here, that means I've never been forgiven. All of us have sinned. And all of us can be and are forgiven by the grace of God. And the inevitable corollary of that is, I forgive you and I pray that God will give you strength. He will save us. He will save others. Now salvation comes in three tenses. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. The moment you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. It's a completed action in the past. We are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. All of them. We are judicially forgiven. We are made right with God through Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven. I have been saved. But I still have the vestiges of temptation with me. I still have the hangover of sin with me. I still have the tendencies to wander and to sin. And we all do. Ask any alcoholic. No alcoholic will ever say to you, I am a recovered alcoholic. They will say, I am a recovering alcoholic. There's no such thing as a recovered sinner. They're only recovering sinners. We're saved by the grace of God. We are forgiven. We are right with God. I have been saved, but I've got to grow in grace. Not grow into grace. You can't do that by good works. That grace comes as a gift from God. I grow in grace and then I grow in grace. I grow in grace and he helps me and strengthens me. And I look back on some of the things in my past and I say, Lord, help me overcome those. Give me strength to overcome those weaknesses and those temptations. If you like a big theological word, that's called sanctification. It means growing in grace. I have been saved. I am being saved. And someday when I go to be with the Lord and meet him, I will be totally saved. I will then and only then be sinless. All of us are familiar with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Incredible man who was a horrible, detestable, contemptible, evil character. He was in the slave trade business. He was a vile man. And in the midst of a storm, he called out to God and God forgave him. And he got out of the slave business, started studying, going to school became one of the great preachers of the world. And he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he meant that word wretch. He was that. 
But I want to read you what John Newton wrote as an epitaph to go on his tombstone. This is what he wanted people to read when they saw his grave. Here lies John Newton. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith we had so long labored to destroy. He never forgot he was a sinner. We must never forget we're sinners. Paul didn't. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We've all sinned. And we're saved by the grace of God. And we are forgiven. And we are to forgive one another. Jesus said, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Last quick slice of bread. Don't be afraid. Three times the angel said it. Said it to Mary, said it it to Joseph, and said it to the shepherds. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It happened in Puerto Rico. The woman was 37 years old and was dying of AIDS. And a priest came to see her. And she started confessing. She said, I have lived a vile and terrible life. I've done awful things. I've ruined my life and I've ruined the lives of others. I'm going to hell. I'm lost as a person can be. It's terrible. It's terrible. The priest stood there listening carefully and looked around the room and there on the dresser was a picture of a young woman. And uh, this very sensitive man obviously Asked the question, who is that? Who, whose picture is that? And the woman said, oh, that's my daughter. And for the first time, her, life, her face brightened up. She said, that's my daughter. She said, that's the only good thing in my life. It's the only bright spot in all of my years. The priest said, uh, if she... Sinned? Would you love her? If she did some horrible things to other people, would you love her? Would you forgive her? Do you love her? She said, oh, I'd forgive her of anything. For I love her more than anything in the world. I love her more than anything in the world. Surely I would forgive her. 
And the priest said, God has your picture on his dresser. If I can love my children, whatever they do, if I can forgive them, whatever they do, how much more does God love us and forgive us? God's with you. God will save us. He does save us. He loves us. We don't need to be afraid. Don't need to be afraid. Afraid to trust him. Afraid to follow him. Afraid to confess him. Afraid to live for him. Afraid to live like him. In our attitudes toward others. Don't be afraid. God's invitation, not mine. The Lord himself speaks to your heart. I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes. And in this great crowd of people where any unnecessary movement would maybe be disturbing to someone who's contemplating a a decision that has eternity wrapped up in it, to trust Christ as your Savior, to come be a part of a church that's endeavoring to love Christ and serve Christ, Our granddaughter Julia said the other day, quoting scripture that she'd learned at school or at Awana's or Sunday school, a great verse from John 3.17, not 3.16, she quoted that, but she said 3.17. For God sent not his son into the world, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. What makes us Christians think that God sent us into the world to condemn the world? Are we better than Jesus? No. We're to do what he did. Save with love and grace. If you want to be a part of a church, that is striving with the help and the leadership of God's loving spirit to be a church like that. You're welcome here. You'll be at home here. You'll help us. We'll endeavor to help and encourage you. So come move your membership. You don't have any church record, but you want to be a part of Trinity, you come. Come rededicate your life, as some did in the earlier service, very quietly. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Ask God what he wants you to do and I'll be here to greet you. Just stand up and come. Come.